As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, glowworms, and welcome to the penultimate episode of this first season here on The Vanity Project. Last week, Nadine Dorries, the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, suggested that the government is hoping to legislate to prevent Netflix from airing content that they deem unacceptable. This week, an SNP councillor in Scotland said on Twitter that she believes Jimmy Carr should be prosecuted for a controversial stand-up comedy routine and, wait for it, that his audience should be prosecuted too for laughing. Meanwhile... Pretty Patel rubs her hands with glee at the Home Office as her police crime sentencing and courts bill makes its way through the legislature, which will give the Home Secretary and police the power to shut down legitimate political protests on almost any grounds they see fit. This would be an egregious blow to the right to assemble and campaign for social change here in the UK. Around Britain, police departments investigate citizens for non-crime incidents such as sharing offensive rap lyrics or jokes on Twitter, In Scotland in recent years, a man has been convicted of a crime for teaching his dog to do a Heil Hitler salute to wind up his girlfriend. And just this past week, a man has been convicted in Scotland of sending an offensive tweet making light of the death of veteran Captain Tom. Even if you feel these types of jokes are in poor taste, and I have to say, living in Glasgow for seven years as I did, poor taste makes up a lump sum of the Glaswegian sense of humour. And that kind of flippant nihilism, I do have a soft spot for. Um, Although the comedy of Jimmy Carr, for example, has never been particularly to my taste. But you can no longer deny that the government is wading in up to their neck on the issues of free speech. I don't think Nadine Dorries, Priti Patel or the busybodies within the SNP establishment should be gatekeeping the things that we can say. History is littered with examples of authoritarian overreach and it never ends well for us, the people or more specifically for my community, artists, performers, minorities. Today my guest is comedian Andrew Doyle, one of the UK's most articulate voices on the subject of free speech. And after our chat, I am joined in Queen's Corner by my old flatmate, drag queen Coco Fanfontaine, 
who reflects on how social media pylons influence our ability to express ourselves freely. This is one of those episodes where you just know a bunch of negative Nancys on Twitter are going to delight in taking remarks out of context and have a field day, you know, mischaracterizing my views or my guests' views. But fuck them. Here's the episode. Andrew Doyle and I have known one another now for a few years. We met in the midst of my own free speech scandal a few years ago back, I think in 2018. Um, and he was always very generous uh, and, and kind-hearted, but he's also actually a very articulate advocate for free speech. And um, presently he has his own show on GB News, The Headliners, a nightly news review populated by comedians and dissidents. And he's famous, perhaps best known for his satirical character, Titania McGrath, who was a truly contemporary creation devised on Twitter um, and making fun of kind of everyone and everyone and the sensibilities of the politically correct people of the day. His new book is called Free Speech and Why It Matters, and he's joining us today before his busy shows in the evening. Andrew Doyle, welcome to The Vanity Project. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk to you as always. Um, free speech is something which everybody knows that is close to my heart. I'm an artist, a drag artist, and you're a comedian, and we're both we're both we're both gay people. So to me, it seems like a no-brainer that we would be supporters of the right to free expression. But it doesn't always feel that that's a commonly held view, particularly with young people nowadays. And you explore this a bit in your book. What do you think is going on at the moment? It's really hard to say. Um, it's particularly interesting to me that you mention the sexuality issue insofar as it would be a no-brainer for me that minorities would be pro-free speech because in every country in the world, wherever there are sort of poor protections against free speech, it's always the minorities that suffer the most. I mean, that's just the way it, 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 it works. So I suppose the fact that there are so many people, even from minority groups who are anti-free speech at the moment in this country, kind of suggests they're taking it for granted. I kind of suggest that we are, we're so accustomed to that particular freedom that we just assume it's there permanently and it can't possibly be threatened and it can't go away. Um, I think that's part of it. So it's actually a sign of uh, a positive thing. It's a, it's a sign of the progress we've made that so many people now want to dismantle free speech. Um, but it's also, I think, um, a lot of people simply don't understand the arguments. And I think what has happened with the young, uh, and I don't like writing off whole generations because I don't think it's accurate. I think I think most young people are still on board with free speech. Um, they're just, uh, you know, there's a more vehement uh, contingent amongst the young that are quite intolerant of, of certain forms of speech. And I think it's because, well, uh, there's the book by um, Luke Yarnoff and Haidt, which is about, uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind, which talks about the ways in which uh, younger generations have been failed by effectively my generation who <laughs> sort of um uh, you know led them to a point where they expect freedom from offense and freedom from any kind of discomfort i suppose and uh the, the, so there's now a, a growing belief that everyone has a right not to feel uncomfortable at any ideas and and the only problem with that of course is that you develop your ideas through discomfort through any any challenge to your cherished ideas particularly your most cherished ideas will hurt um and so 100 percent. and in, in comedy that's 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 an essential part of like the sort of little system with words of taboos and breaking mm -hmm. taboos and and breaking down barriers between people one of the first things i 
in my observations, one of the first things comedians do when they go on stage is they they set up a little paradigm where they mock some of the elements of themselves to put the audience at ease. Yeah. And it seems to me that like teasing and, and highlighting things, it might be that, you know, the, the comic is gay or the comic is is unusually tall and they'll sort of make a remark about that because it discharges the tension. And yeah. part of this, the way that we socialize is by highlighting these little things and, and also teasing one another. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's you've identified a very sort of key trope of stand up. And so many stand ups start their set with I know what you're thinking. And then they'll give some sort of description of themselves. You know, why is the love child right. of Jeremy Clarkson and Joan of Arc? Turned on? I don't know what that would look like, actually. I just but you know <laughs> what I mean? they, they, they come up with something like that uh, to deflate the tension. Absolutely. But also, as you say, I think, you know, I mean, particularly with my close friends, part of the way in which our relationship is sustained is through mild forms of abuse. You know, it's, it's, it's um, yeah. you know, continual, maybe that's just me, but it's, it's, it's mockery. It's saying little truths about each other that we're aware of uh, that you wouldn't really take from other people. And it's, it's actually quite good for you to have your, you know, to have things challenged. Um, but, the, and you know, every time in my life where I've, I don't know how you feel, but every time in my life where I've ended up changing my mind on a particular issue has always been slightly uh, unpleasant uh, insofar as sometimes I've had arguments with people and I've, and I've even been a bit antagonistic oh you know you're talking nonsense you're talking rubbish and I've gone away and thought about it smarting a little from the kind of uh, the, 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 the shock to <laughs> to my views and thought actually they may have a point explored more read more thought about it more and eventually come around to their point of view and that's so that's part of it who is it who's talked about how when you change your mind, a little part of you dies, and you have to let it die, um, because yeah. you're kind of, you're, you're, your mind is reshaping around a, a new understanding of reality, and that it's it's education. That's what educate. That's why learning is hard. It's really, really hard. It's it's that's why kids prefer to muck about in class rather than focus on the task in hand, because mucking about is more fun, and and, and focus is difficult. But that's why we have to train ourselves. Uh, you know, either we're socialized. I like that idea. I like the idea that we we let our bad ideas die so that we don't die. So when we're mapping out the world and we're sort of trying to navigate the world, yeah. our map is incomplete. And actually, if you have a bad idea or you've miscalculated the terrain, you need to resign that idea to the dustbin and then introduce a new thought or a new way. And we have to do that in public discourse around things that are perceived as the right way to think or are the, or, or the, the best way to move forward. We have to be able to um, chat it out, have the conversation and have the debate. I suppose yeah. people might be listening and wondering like, if we're, if we're not being too specific, like what are we talking about? I think about the way that at the moment, there seems to be a, quite a cultural tone of censoriousness around various identity issues. People feel quite um, walking on eggshells with one another. Comedians are, are are filmed on smartphones, comments taken out of context, and then it's a news article and the comedian faces, you know, the loss of bookings and stuff like that. And it creates a climate in which people are actually less open hearted and and less able to communicate their ideas with one another. Yeah, it's it's difficult trying to work out why it is the case, but I think you're right, it is the case. I mean, there is a number of things I've thought about. I mean there, there it seems to be a lack of humility that goes on with a lot of this stuff insofar as we are all all of us must be wrong 
about a lot of things all the time. Okay, that's that yeah. must be the case, right? So if you are aware yeah. of that, it means you won't ever be imposing your views on others or or, or, or or being so dogmatic in your worldview because you know that something that you are saying must be wrong. And that I think has, a lot of people are losing that capacity to, to, to have that humility. Uh, and maybe that's tied to the rise of social media. I'm not uh, at all uh, qualified to say, I, I've speculated about it. I wonder whether, because we're, we're compelled to sort of commodify ourselves to present a kind of flawless version of ourselves to the world, whether that engenders this kind of um, uh, sense of self-perfection or infallibility. Maybe. I don't, I, I, you know, that's a, a big statement and not one I can substantiate with any with any particular knowledge. Um, but, but you know, maybe. There's something going on, though. There's some, there's, there is that lack of humility. It's, it's, it's um, and particularly in the young, that's, that's troubling because any teenager is going to be wrong about most things. And actually... By the time they're 30, it's going to disagree with all of the most of the things they thought when they were 15. And just to remind young people of that uh, is is quite a I didn't know it when I was a teenager either. Teenagers never know it. Um, but it's 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 something that's worth sort of tackling. Um, and the other the other thing I would say about that, I mean, you were talking about how um, what are, what are we talking about here? Like pe people maybe don't know what we're talking about here. Yeah. Well, I think it's 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 things like. Um, punishing people for having an opinion that you don't agree with rather than saying, let's talk about that. Even an opinion you find offensive or or assuming the worst motivation behind that opinion or phrase or idea that you find offensive. To give an example, there's an article in this month's uh, issue of The Critic magazine uh, by someone who works in the theatre and he talks about, um, this is a major theatre uh, a stagehand was walking backstage in the dark, as you know, behind backstage as you do, walked past a yeah. tall black actor and said, excuse me, I think he said, excuse me, Algernon, but the person's name was something else. It was something like Roger or something, but it was another black, another tall black actor. But he was in the dark. He was behind him. He was moving. He was probably had a million things on his mind. He was then told that that was racist. That was an expression of racism and therefore he was fired, lost his job, all the rest of it. Now, of course, that's an uncharitable interpretation of that scenario, which is, of you know, <clears throat> I mix people up all the time. <clears throat> I get people's names wrong all the time. But if you leap to, it must be informed by uh, evil or bi or bigotry or hatred. Uh, then that, I mean, that I think is something else that's going on here is the is the the broad assumption of the worst possible motives in anyone who disagrees, and that that's something we really have to challenge. I think that's definitely an element that is actually incentivized by the way that we communicate because the, obviously so much of how we communicate is conducted online. And, mm. you know, uh, if you think that, well, I think Twitter incentivizes the least generous interpretation of yeah. an event or, of, or, or something that someone said, and it actually maximizes the viral reach of that ungenerous interpretation. Yeah. So if you want yeah. to have a successful tweet, basically, you, what you want to do is is uh, is is uh, what's the word like turn turn someone's comments into a pantomime version of what they said. Because actually, the scope for interpretation in of any remark or any gesture is quite enormous, as we yeah. know. You know, <laughs> and if you take the least generous one, that's the one you're going to run with, and then we have the whole conversation based on that assumption. Um, and like, that's not a healthy way to have conversations. They're almost, we're like handing the discourse to sociopaths in that regard. Well, wouldn't it be more healthy to just sort of say, oh, did you mean this? Did you mean what you said here? I mean, I saw it today, someone, you know, 
tweeted today about uh, home, you know, Homo erectus being 200 million years old. And of course, what they meant to write is two million. They were thinking two oh 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 and and wrote two hundred million. Now this person is an expert in biology and knows it's not two hundred million. And people were part, coming in saying, "Oh, you don't even know this. You know, it's an obvious typo. Why would you?" <laughs> it's, it's you know, I mean that's a small example. Um, but there's also the the way in which people misinterpret uh, what you're saying for their own gain, knowing that they're misinterpreting, knowing that they're misrepresenting, and that's something else. I mean. To give a, a again a bit of a frivolous example, but Dan Wharton has a show on GB News, and he introduced um, Benjamin Butterworth as the late editor of the I newspaper. That's his job title. That's his job title. He is the late editor because he edits the late edition of the I newspaper, right? And people clipped it and said, "Look how stupid Dan Wharton is because he thinks that Benjamin Butterworth is dead." Dead. Yeah. Late ed- now he obviously doesn't think that because right? he's there. Because he's there. That's also his title, right? So if they just googled it. They would, have, they would have resolved that, but they couldn't resist. And so they know that they're misinterpreting it in order to make some, to, to mock someone. But the mockery doesn't work because it's based on a false premise. So why not just, why bother? Yeah. Well, so let's talk about GB News because that's where you're based now. That's, I suppose that's your, your main job. It must consume all of your time really to be doing a nightly show. Um, is well, is it, or five nights a week? No, it's a, it's, it does consume most of my time because I, it's a full-time job. You know, I've got my, my show on Sundays, Free Speech Nation, which is the evening Sunday show that I present. But I also produce Headliners, which is seven nights a week. So I'm, I'm usually in till after midnight there. Uh, so it is uh, pretty all, con- and I'm developing other things with them. So it is all consuming. Um, yeah. So, you, so you're, you're right there in the, in, in, the, in the thick of things at GB News. Now, mm. um, listeners, I, don't, I mean, I don't know the profile of the listeners to the Vanity Project yet. I haven't managed to do personal meet and greets with the people who are listening. Mm-hmm. Um, you should but, do that. You should charge for that. Well, we're, we're going to do a live event, actually, in March at the Glasgow International Comedy Festival, um, really? where we'll have, have some comics and some stuff there. Because I think it'd be quite fun. You remember when I was doing the talk show at H Club, yeah. before the pandemic and I was getting it starting to get into my stride with that but then the pandemic struck so yeah we're looking forward to doing it in person yeah. um now you've got live audiences at GB News I know that GB News has come under a fire online right from the inception because people were anticipating this was going to be the Fox News of the new kit of the UK and then obviously there were the teething problems with you know poor lighting dodgy framing and cameras and stuff as the studios were getting up and running yeah. and also the high profile departure of Andrew Neil, the high profile arrival of Nigel Farage. Um, but the channel is in its stride now. I suppose what I'm, what I'm curious to know is the, the, the charge that this is the Fox News of the UK, how do you feel about that? And obviously I've been on the channel. I came on your show, but you were off. You, I think you had COVID when I came on. I did, yeah. And um, I came on to talk about ABBA who were launching their new digital concert tour, their, their you know, their- yeah their big thing. Um, and one of my friends, my friend Benedict, who is a really good friend of mine, but he wasn't happy with me going on. We had to dis- agree to disagree on it, but there is some animus against GB News here in, yeah. here in the UK. Is that something you can reflect yeah, on? Yeah, it's one of the most interesting examples of hysteria that I've seen in, in recent years. I mean, it was very interesting because this is a perfect example of how a hysteria uh, emerges. So four months before we started, uh, there was a group called Stop Funding Hate, another group called Led by Donkeys, who, who decided what the channel was. No one knew, not even the people at the channel knew what it was going to be, really. Um, they decided it was this far-right echo chamber, 
which would only have right-wing people and it was going to be like Fox News and everything. They just decide, created a fantasy version of a channel that didn't yet exist and never was to exist. When the channel started, it was nothing like that. And the people who watched it saw that it was nothing like that. Um, and the people who insisted on not watching it because they bought into the pre-existing fantasy continued with their fantasy, even when faced with the evidence against it. This is called a belief perseverance. When you, you have a belief, the evidence comes along to disprove it, but you persist. And anyone who's trapped ideologically will do that, no matter what the ideology is. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to me. And, and you watch and all the GB News, there's no editorial line, right? So at GB News, we have presenters who say what they think, and they invite guests on who say what they think. And GB News has always made a point of inviting people from the left, from the right, from all, all political sides. And, and because people they, from the left come on in sufficient well, numbers they, for balance. The, point. They, the fantasy world that was created uh, puts a lot of left pe left leaning people off because if they do come on, they tend to get flack for doing so. Well, this is the thing because you know my 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 friend who who might not thank me for now discussing this at a at a public forum, but you know he he I don't think had a problem that I was on that on the Andrew Doyle show. I think he finds some of Titania McGrath stuff quite funny, but. And he was like, yeah, but Nigel Farage is on that network. And, you know, I wasn't going on Nigel Farage's show. I remember I was asked on talk radio once, would I interview Nigel Farage on, on my talk show event that I was doing? And I was like, well, I would be interested to talk to him. I'm, I'm interested in talking to people who have beliefs that aren't in perfect alignment with my own. Yeah. Um, but this idea that by being on the same station that people who my friend disagrees with contaminates me with, that stench, I find that quite objectionable um, because, you know, I'm responsible for what I say and I can only take partial responsibility for the conversations I participate in. Mm -hmm. I was having a conversation about Abbott, of course, so there were, there were no controversies there particularly. Um, and I think that that's something that's important when it comes to free speech is that we can't smear people by association, especially by like second, third, fourth, you know, <laughs> to be a separation association. Um, and if, if that's if that's something that happens, it's not, that's another thing. It's not very good for our, no. for our conversation. I mean, that's a major problem. Is you get this phrase fascist adjacent. If you've appeared yeah. on a platform with someone who's appeared on a platform with someone who, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's insane. It's it, this idea that, that ideas and opinions are sort of, you know, caught as if like, like a virus from someone that you happen to be in close proximity with. I mean, it's, mad, it's, it's madness, it, it, it's, it's anti-intellectual, it's, 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 it's infantile actually is what it is. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, you know, look, a lot of these people have an, a big problem with people like Jeremy Clarkson, but they don't have a go at people who have appeared on BBC One. Uh, they, 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 they have this idea that if you're, there's, it's connected to the hysteria around the channel, that if they don't like one show, one show, which will be what? I mean, Nigel Farage, for instance, will be responsible for what uh, less than 5% of the channel's output. But that contaminates everything else because they don't happen to like him. But like you say, why shouldn't they talk? Why shouldn't someone talk to Nigel Farage or anyone else they disagree with? That's actually a healthy thing to do. But but the Fox News thing as well is baffling because a lot of the people who uh, have, have made that accusation against us, uh, a lot of them work for Murdoch. I mean, a lot. Of, I've, I've, there have been people at Times Radio who have said this. <laughs> who work for literally the man who runs Fox News. I mean, it's very, very strange that that, that uh, uh, GB News, which is not funded by Murdoch, is-, is, there, is, is a there is definitely a very, what I mean, I obviously I don't watch Fox News being the one, well, I'm sure we can watch it here in the UK, but I don't like have cable or whatever. And I, I don't think I'd be watching it anyway. I do find American 
uh, news in, insufferably like fast paced and snarky mm. and everything. It's, uh, There's a lot so on the quite... green as well, isn't there? There's too much on. Yeah, the it's 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 like a fever dream. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> I do. I would say GB News certainly uses a lot of comics. So there's a very quippy nature to the mm. news run, right? In the stuff that I've caught, and I know I'll only see the stuff that goes viral um, yeah. because I'm not sat. I don't really watch TV, but um, it definitely has a quippy, quite irreverent tone, and I do associate that with the likes of your Tucker, Tucker Carlson's and uh, over on well, Fox News. It depends on which show you watch. I mean, uh, if you watch Gloria De Pierre, you won't get that quippy, uh, that right. sort of barbed tone, for instance. Michelle Juby definitely doesn't have that sort of barbed tone. Um, it depends on who you, you know, what you're watching. Of course, if you're watching programs I'm associated with, I'm going to be bringing comedians on. But it's very interesting with headliners because he yeah. all that headliners is, headliners is, there's a, pay a late night paper preview show on Sky, on BBC. It's been on for ages. You watch the show, you know what's in tomorrow's papers. You get, you, the, the, the guests run through it all for you. So we're, so we're just doing the same. And all we do is populate it with comedians. And that's the only difference. So people, so that's all the show is, a late night paper preview show. But when that was announced, the comedy industry went mad. All these comedians online piled on. They got really angry about it. They were calling them scabs. Um, Mitch Ben was going on about how they're all right-wing comics. And of course, the truth is there were 13 names that we announced. The majority of them were on the left. And I think that's what annoyed people. I think I think if we'd have if I'd have just yeah. booked right wing comics, they could have said, "Oh well, that's GB News. They're all right." But now they can. It's actually would, most. Would you have there. found? Would you have found many? <laughs> no, there, I mean there aren't many right wing comics. Let's be honest. But 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 the the reality is that what we have on headlines is a very diverse range of political opinions, and that's what drives them crazy because they they believe they've 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 developed this idea. This sectarianism effectively is what it is. They believe, and they punish yeah. more severely people from their own side. Who, who, who will dare have a conversation with anyone else, you know? I'm, I'm inclined to agree with that. I do think that sometimes when it comes to the combat of political discourse, people don't actually really know or have the greatest appetite to take on their true opponents. No. Um, Cause, you know, hard. because yeah, lines have been drawn in the sand, the trenches are built. And so actually there, there's more reward in, in, in censuring or censoring the people on your own side and having a go at them. I think of in your book, you know, the free speech book that's out now, and I, I do recommend it to people because it's actually, it's like a hundred pages. So it's it's quite, it's, it, it, it's, it's appropriately um, dense to make the points, but it's actually quite a breezy read. Um, and in it, you, you know, you refer to the idea of the boy who cried fascist, you know, that, that, that the people who will, admonish any view they don't like as being extreme or far right or, or whatever else. What they do is by calling someone a fascist, they disoblige themselves of countering the arguments themselves. Because, you know, once you've called someone a fascist, why, why, why do we need to reason with them? We know what fascists are and fascism is not to be reasoned with. But it does also let the person doing the slurring off the hook, um, which is very convenient for them because it's you know, this is a reputational attack. It's to make someone a persona non grata. And that's probably what's happening with these comics. Because I, like, who's watching, I mean, who's watching the show? It's one of those things like, you know, the number of people kicking off on Twitter are not, or, or the people kicking off on Twitter are not the same constituency. They're actually watching the show, are they? No, 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 exactly. And if they did watch the show, they'd probably enjoy it. That's the, the weird thing about it. Because all it is, it's not, I think they thought it was supposed to be some sort of panel show where we would all mock left-wing people or something. I don't know what they thought it was. It's just comedians chatting about the news, right? In, and, the, you know, in a light-hearted way. And that's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really fun show and it's a good way to get the night's, the next paper's news in your head. You know what's, you know, it's, it's, 
weird. The, the hysteria around this has been particularly weird because it's such an innocuous program with, with really nice people. And so, and that's the other thing that bothers me about it. It's when, you know, you have comedians like Andrew O'Neill saying they're all scabs. And I'm like, I work with these people. They're all really lovely. You work with these people. That's the thing. He works with them. He knows they're nice people. So this sectarianism is, is unthinking. It's based on a, an inability to think critically. And absolutely what you say is when you throw those insults out, I mean, look at the, the Canadian truckers at the moment, you know, just saying they're all fascists. Okay, well, now we don't have to listen to their grievances and their concerns, right. you know? It's and I find that so... Go on. The, I, I was just saying to, I was saying to my flatmate today that I find the Canadian truckers thing so hilarious because, you know, here are all these truckers whose jobs have been so affected by the mandates around vaccination and the fact that if you're trucking from Canada to the USA and now you, you have all these severe delays because you have to be tested every time you go back into Canada. So the truckers hardly need to be fascists to have a legitimate complaint about vaccine mandates and all the rest or, or about the fact the country's not fully open yet. Like it, it, the idea that they must be fascist to hold those views is is just so stupid. It is stupid. I mean, it's historically illiterate. It's people who don't know what fascism is, other than a, a catch-all slur that will enable them to uh, disregard someone. You know, if you, you know, I'm I don't yeah. have the ability. I couldn't sit and talk to a fascist. It would drive me up the wall. Like I can't talk to anyone who has no capacity for rational thought. I can't do it. Uh, and there are people who can do it. I mentioned in the book, Daryl Davis, who has completely de-radicalized members of the KKK, for God's sake. He's got yeah, some crazy. of their hoods in his cupboard to prove it. Like, I, I, I have not, I have the, the most incredible admiration for someone with that kind of patience and skill and, and uh, you know, I can't do it. It's not for me. So I wouldn't sit, if you said to me, come on, come on this show with this fascist and talk to this, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it just because I wouldn't, you know, it's not for me. Um, uh, but but the idea that someone, if I disagree with someone, if I if I just think, well, okay, well, I could just call them this name. I can call them fascists, and that means I don't have to talk to them because I've already said I don't talk to fascists. It's so convenient I, and so manipulative. I think the saddest part of you know, obviously, this is the sort of thing we've been discussing in our in 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 the culture for the past few years about the you know the the rise of anti semitic sentiment or the, the rise of anti-muslim sentiment or uh you know that that there are there are an unsavory views which which do bubble up in a society there's no denying that that does happen i always think that the tragedy for a for a racist or a fascist the personal tragedy is that they're denying themselves a human experience with other human beings you know mm -hmm. Um, I think you're right. It takes somebody of enormous empathy to try and walk someone back off that ledge. And, you know, That's uh, more than empathy. I, think <laughs> I dare say that you haven't the patience, but also being that you are an acerbic wit, um, would, you know, you, you, they, these people need social workers. They don't, they don't necessarily no, they, do they that. They don't need me. They don't need me. Our I, flavor. I can't yeah. help with those people. I don't know. I can't. It's like talking to a child, isn't it? Like, that's why I gave up teaching. I, can't, I just don't have the patience for it. You say in the book that um, that if we permit the worst people in society to take ownership of our most fundamental values, we are gifting them a degree of power they do not deserve. Good people should not abandon their beliefs when bad people claim them for their own. And I think about that, you know, there's been a hot minute where the, the right wing do have the, or have been waving the the banner for free speech because it certainly suits them at the moment but when i was younger 
it was very much the left wing that had that anti-establishment voice of the minority free speech perspective. Yeah, and to be fair, you know, it's it's it is a non-partisan issue. This is something I'm emphasizing throughout the book is I don't think it is free speech should ever be a partisan issue. It's for everyone. Uh, yeah, and 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 still today, you know, you have a lot of people on the left who do believe in free speech still, but they're not the fashionable people or the loudest people, right? So, they, right. so you get this sort of impression that left wing equals uh, opposition to freedom, and uh, that's not fair either. Um, but but um, also because I don't think that this new movement or whatever we call it, critical social justice movement, I don't think it is a left-wing movement. I see it more as a right-wing movement. It's very much concerned with middle-class concerns above uh, above all else and particularly not concerned about the poor. And in that sense, it is more of a right-leaning movement, I think. But 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 all of that thing, all of that left-right debate is actually a distraction, really. Um, you're absolutely right. You know, when I was a kid, there's always the right-wing tabloids going on about, we've got to ban this film. The one I remember most is, is David Cronenberg's film Crash when I was a little kid and they were, I think it was Express and the Mail were call, literally calling it for it to be banned. And then, um, yeah. you know, but now that would, be, that would be in The Guardian, that would be in The New Statesman. And they'd be saying that the, the film uh, sends a, a message that will corrupt the masses. It's the identical logic, um, but it's just from a different perspective. And they will say, you know, because this movie doesn't have sufficient representation or because this movie represents a gay person as being villainous, say, or something like that. Uh, they, they, yeah. all, all sides of this argument have bought into this idea that artists and creators and writers, that their responsibility is first and foremost political or ideological, is, is edu educating the masses in how to think, which is the opposite of what art is. It's, you know, as far as I'm uh, concerned, yeah, art has nothing to do with it. I, I object to that so much. And I feel like there's this thing that's happened with drag, which, um, which by the way, there's, there's so much drag performance in the world right now, and there's room for every flavor of it right so i'm not i'm not knocking the drag queen story times and stuff um you know we've had pantomime tradition of drag in this country for a very long time kids being around uh drag in the theater and stuff so i don't have an issue with that but one thing i do think is that the idea that the principal function of an artist is to engineer social change yeah uh, like to to for an artist to become a tool of an ideology is like i i find that quite vehemently objectionable um and it's one of the reasons why I know that I have friends who have actually produced really great music videos and really great work that's been art arts council funded. Yeah. But I've always balked at the idea of seeking that type of investment from my own work, um, as much as it would be nice to have a cash injection to put on certain shows, <laughs> because I find there to be something a bit corrupt about accepting money from the state to create. Yeah. The state is the opposite of what an artist is to me. An artist is is <laughs> dancing naked under the moon, and the state is a very different thing, you know. Yeah, I mean, the way the state went wrong, where the arts council has gone wrong, is it, its idea that it, it it should be about public messaging, and and it, it, it a lot of the grants are awarded on that basis. Are you sending the right message right. in your work? So so that is yeah, that's why whenever you watch, a friend of mine said it to me recently because he he was saying he's had to stop watching things on Netflix now because it everything feels like state art because everything's pushing the same ideological message. So it's right, so, and I agree with you. I think there's no contradiction in saying, I mean, I think I'm quite happy uh, to knock drag queen story time, uh, but I'm also uh, happy that it exists insofar as I, 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 I agree. I don't think there's a contradiction here. There is room for everything. If you wanna do political, pedagogic, didactic art, and that's fine, there's room for that. Do it if you wanna do it. But I can also knock it and say, I think it's banal because I think it's banal. 
And that's that's the problem. I, I you know, that's my problem with drag queen story time. It's not that drag, it's not drag art is being around kids. Like you say, that's been around forever. It's boring. It's, it's really boring. It, it's funny because I think that thinking about Netflix, and somebody pointed out to me that like Netflix's model seems to be that, you know, they'll produce shows that people are into for like a year or two, but they're not, they don't have that many shows with longevity. Like yeah. they don't have many eight season shows. Um, you know, it's sort of like capture the zeitgeist for a year or two and then retire the show. Yeah. Um, and I was what you know, I've been obsessed with um, Ozark lately. Yeah. Um, which actually I think is, is quite brilliant. And, there, you know, I think that a lot of the shows that you see nowadays do have a more diverse casting in the sense that, you know, there's a, a young uh, lad with Down syndrome who's in the show of Ozark. And actually, I think, God, you never it, you never really see people who are who are Down syndrome, particularly often in our dramas and in our programs. And here on the podcast, my friend Sadie Sinner came on to talk about why she created the Cocoa Butter Club that showcases black cabaret artists. And I got to admit it, like I was there when she started that whole event about six, seven years ago. And now there's so much more brilliant talent coming from the black community here in London that I just didn't get to see before. So I do think that these, these, uh, some of these elements of how shows are put together now is actually has a value. I think it is, it's great to see well, our world reflected back in that capacity, well, but wait, it's wait. also important to see. I think where I slightly disagree is that I, I think people should, I think absolutely you want to do a black cabaret night, do it. You want to do an all black show. You want to do an all black, you know, remake of Titanic, you know, do whatever you want. Um, I'm all for that, but it's the, what I object to is when people make different choices, they are attacked for those choices on the basis of an ideological worldview they don't share. You know, Christopher Nolan makes Dunkirk. The vast majority of people in, at Dunkirk were young white men, often teenagers. And he gets mm. criticized for not including more people of color in the cast. Now, to me, if, if, if you come along and all you're doing is counting the number of uh, different colored faces on the screen, you're not engaging with it as a work of art and you're not getting anything out of it. Um, uh, and you're not understanding what, what the purpose of it is. Um, it's, it's quite a fundamental flaw. So I would say, if you want to make a film which has diversity for its own sake to send a message about the importance of diversity, make that film, but don't attack another artist. Who, I mean, his decision was clearly he wanted to do something that was historically accurate so that you would feel more immersed in it. Um, and and yeah. I don't see what's wrong with that either. And I don't see why that should be subject to, you know, when the, when BAFTA says you have to make you have to have a certain uh, percentage of uh, ethnic groups in films in order to be eligible. Well, then you're asking people who are making historical work to 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 do something that is 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 not accurate in order to to fit that ideological worldview. And I think that's a problem as well. Whereas I wouldn't care if you if you said I'm going to make I'm going to make a film about Queen Victoria, but she's going to be black. I, I I think that might be quite see under normal circumstances I would find that quite interesting. I remember when Francis Delatour played Hamlet, for instance, and it's going a long way back. That was interesting and radical. No one was doing oh, she's that. Brilliant. And, and it was yeah. like, you know, it was something, you know, even when, even when The Wiz was made, even when there was this all black Wizard yeah. of Oz, right? Radical, um, uh, punky almost, something just, just out, you know, doing it now is boring because what you're doing is, is it's, it's the establishment line. It's, it's pushing ideological practices that are vogue -ish. So Isn't it's the opposite of radical. And that's why it doesn't interest me. 
Yeah, no, I think that makes sense to me. You know, I think when you talk about satire and that satire at its root, satire is ribbing the powerful. And I think that one of the things people do a bit at the moment is they lie about who is powerful. Mm. There are some dominant narratives within our culture where, you know, the biggest sort of meme waves are of uh, support for causes that, uh, that on the face of it, we, we can support things like, of course, we know that black lives matter. Well, I say, of course, I would hope that it's evident that the people in my life knew that, but um, that the black lives matter. These are, these are actually enormously popular social mm. ideas. Um, and I think sometimes people think that they're not, and they sort of behave as though that is some tiny fringe unfashionable anti-establishment view i'm like that's that's basically the majority you're, view right now in our basically look if if the people who are on your side ideologically are big tech massive corporations the us government meghan markle and prince harry you're not you're not radical you're not anti-establishment you are the establishment so it's very funny right. to me it's really funny when 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 radical people who claim to be radical people claim to be the underdogs have major have, have the support of all major cultural educational political institutions it's really funny that's why i did Titanic mm. because it makes me laugh you know people who yeah. are so powerful thinking they're the victim that's that's funny to me yeah yeah no i i i <laughs> i mean obviously the thing is like establishments get some things right like that you know sure. um it doesn't speak to the the value or non-value of something if it's an establishment held position or not. But I, I accept that, you know, there are views that are marketed or pitched by people for their own personal aggrandizement as radical, and they're not. Um, it's funny that if you think five years ago, or maybe, no, it's probably like six years ago, Charlie Hebdo I'm thinking of, maybe it's 2015. Um, when Charlie Hebdo happened and a reminder for for the listeners that that's when the magazine Charlie Hebdo in Paris's headquarters was attacked by Islamic fundamentalists who you know assassinated the journalists and within I think they killed like twenty people they shot them all I and mean, it was absolutely horrific one of the, honestly one of the most shocking heartbreaking horrendous stories in my life that I can think of and the huge meme wave afterwards of Je suis Charlie that everyone put up in their profile picture saying that they support free speech that we are all Charlie Hebdo. Um, and you just would not have that today. And that's only seven or eight years later. People yeah. would not have a wave in support of free speech in the same way. Um, yeah. It's just, it's funny because I think there's been a devaluing of the value of free speech. And, you know, people like yourself and me have been have been aware of it and, and sort of commenting on it and concerned about it and trying to make jokes about it and stuff for some time. And it seems only now that some people are starting to wake up, like with the kill the bill movement that is sadly kicking in a bit too late because obviously the, the police crimes and sentencing bill has already gone through the commons. Yeah. Um, but the devaluing of free speech as a fundamental feature of our liberal democracy um, has created the window for people like Pretty Patel to exploit. And people only seem to be like, oh, that thing that, you know, that Andrew Doyle has been going on about for a few years actually has actually been a thing. Yeah, because they've gone tribal because because, as I say, it's this sectarianism thing. So they don't see. I mean, whenever there have been clampdowns on freedom by the state, it always ends up uh, being applied in ways that you could never anticipate. I mean, I think one of the, the ones I mentioned in the book is the 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 uh, the, the Cable Street uh, event. And obviously at Cable Street, people were gathering to resist actual fascists. I'm not talking about 
what people call fascists today, actual fascists. Um, and it was the Labour Party that said, look, we need public order acts. We need to clamp down on fascist demonstrations. And lo and behold, that same legislation was predominantly thereafter used against the left. It was used against the miners during the 80s. You know, it was, it was you know, they set the motion in, go, uh, in place for their own destruction, in other words. You know, yeah. so that, that's the thing. So it's free, this is why we have to perceive free speech and the principle of free speech to be nonpartisan. You know, I mean, like exactly what you say, Pretty Patel, the Conservative Party, the uh, at the moment with their online safety bill, I think they used to call it the online harms bill. They are, I think, taking out the aspect because they used to have this phrase, uh, legal but harmful speech, which I found really chilling. Um, uh, but they are, you know, it is absolutely draconian. It is a, a serious problem. Uh, we have, I think it was last night was reported or yesterday it was reported that the man who tweeted about Tom, um, Captain Tom, you know, the, uh, the, the old man who did that charity raise, fundraising. Yeah, work, yeah, during lockdown. And um, this man in Scotland uh, tweeted, oh, he should burn in hell or something. It was a nasty, after he died, it was a nasty tweet, right? Uh, he's just been prosecuted in a court of law. He's going to be sentenced in March uh, for something he said. Now, and the problem with this is, whenever we get down to these debates, then it's like, oh, I see. So you you think it's okay for a man to mock the death of a, a lovely old man? No, I don't. I think it's abhorrent and awful. No, and I think you it's should. It's not the business it. of the state. Nothing, nothing to do with the state. It sets an incredibly dangerous precedent. And again and again, I come back to this: Why are not? Why are politicians not standing up and saying we need to repeal? all these hate speech laws we have. At the moment, they're enacted in the Communications Act and the Public Order Act. And that's where our hate speech law, they, they don't call them hate speech in the legislation, but that's where they are. If you read uh, Paul Coleman's book, Censored, he re reprints in facsimile form all of the um, hate speech laws across Europe. And what you will see is no European country can agree on what hate speech means. It is a, a completely, hopelessly nebulous idea in this country with the Communications Act. It comes down to whether or not a judge decides that something is offensive or grossly offensive. If it is grossly offensive, you can go to prison for it. If it's offensive, no, that's fine, that's free speech. A hopelessly subjective designation that should, has no business on the statute books. But politicians don't want to stand up in Parliament and say, we need to repeal these, because if they do, the standard argument is, oh, well, then you clearly want hateful so people to say yeah. well, they're hateful things. And it is not the same thing. It's such a fundamental, basic, basic misunderstanding. You can, you can sense from my tone I'm very frustrated because, because the argument well, is so basic. That's the thing. The, 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 the legislation around hate speech, I, if I remember rightly, this sort of came in in like early 2000s, right? Um, 2003 is the, the, Act. the Public Order Act goes back to 86, but it still it has elements, yeah. Because the concept of hate speech is one that younger people will be so familiar with the term and won't necessarily realise that there was sort of a debate around that term mm. way back then, which, you know, the idea being that is a crime worse because of somebody's negative feelings towards you based on a certain characteristic? I don't think that it's the government's job to legislate on what's in our heads. No. Um, you know, if I get punched in the face, I don't care if I was punched in the face because I'm gay. Like I want them to be prosecuted for punching me in the face. Yeah. Punch is to me is the, the issue here. Obviously I don't want people to go around with hate in their hearts, but I don't think that you, uh, that you heal the world with, uh, by fiat, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that, and it's that thing of people have different opinions about like, how do we make the world more caring and considerate? I, I understand the arguments on all sides of this, but where I come down is that, um, you know, is that, that hate speech is just enormously subjective. Well, how delusional to think that you can possibly 
stop uh, hate by stopping hate. Yeah, that you could wipe out a human emotion through legislation. Hilarious. I, I mean, you can stop crime to an extent through legislation, insofar as it has a, uh, a deterring effect on on certain criminals. Right? You can't you can't wipe out hate. It, it makes no sense at all. It's if if you say hatred towards gay people is illegal. People don't stop hating gay people. They just stop articulating it so much. Where you know it's it's, and and also it probably festers and makes the hatred more. Uh, it, it, it exacerbates the the problem. But this is so obvious. I can't even believe I have to say it. But it is absolutely obvious. It's frustrating that I think that you know the religious thinkers of of of, of history and sort of spiritual thinkers have for, for a long time sort of come to this. It's almost that Jedi way of thinking that like you know, what you have to do in life is you have to love as many people as you can. Um, yeah. You have to kind of forgive where you can and let go of the things that are causing pain to you when you can. Um, and, you know, obviously if you try and make that case around stuff like that there are, you know, cause I always think about homophobes. I'm like, look, homophobes are catching up and they'll eventually catch up and they've taken a long time to catch up and the world is, is growing. There's less of a threat to masculinity by gay people's existence and all those other things. Um, I don't harbour an intense dislike of homophobes. I think that they've got it wrong. I think they're denying themselves a human experience with me and my with the fabulous gay people I know. Yeah, pity them. But I feel quite secure, and I'm lucky to. But I feel secure enough to say, I don't care. I don't well, care what also, you think. Also, it's none of our business. I mean, this is the weirdest thing. Like the idea that you know, I don't understand it insofar as I don't know why you would hate any group of people for who they are. It's it's not in my nature to feel that way. And and so just on a sort of basic level of human comprehension, I find it baffling. But I also don't think it's any of my business who someone else loves or hates. Like it's, it's you know, people, well, let's say it, people should be allowed to hate if they want, right? It's if they, if they do anything that infringes on other people's rights that the law has to step in. Hatred in of itself in, infringes on no one's rights. It's when that hatred motivates something and it's the act, as you say, it's the punch in the face that is infringed on my rights, not someone thinking about, oh, I, I, I hate that person, I don't like him. That's, it's a, you know, I don't, I just don't want to be in the position where we are. Also, as I say, the precedent it sets is, is quite mind boggling, the precedent of, and we can see what happens. We've seen it in Scotland. I mean, the SNP are out of control with this. I mean, their, their, their hate crime bill that went through earlier this year is yeah. one of the most frightening and draconian things. You know, the, the part about criminalizing what you say in your own home if some homophobe wants to sit in his home and say, I hate gay people, I hate that I, I think they're all scum, and uh, then that's up to him. It's none of our business, definitely none of the state's business. Um, I suppose finally, um, you've just reminded me actually, <laughs> I know a point that you've, you've, you've talked about quite a lot before, is this investigation by police groups, by police departments into things that aren't actually crimes yeah. uh, that they're concerned about anyway. So for example, it might be that somebody's posted an old Kevin Hart joke on their Twitter or something like that. And it's, you know, it's off color or it's, or it's deemed homophobic and the police show up at the door or it could be a thing around trans or, or race or, and, you know, whatever, whatever it happens to be. And the police come knocking and they say, well, actually a crime hasn't been committed, but we'd like to know what you were thinking anyway. And they'll still record it. And, you know, in this time where, you know, we're, <laughs> we were having debates about police funding and like what we want to do. And it's like, really, is this the best way to spend our 
money as a, as a country I mean, it's or at least to go around basically doing the work of the nosy neighbor it's it's really it, you know we're getting somewhere with it so you know non-crime hate incidents standard form of policing now uh, between 2014 and 2019 there were more than 120,000 recorded non-crime hate incidents the police of course have no business investigating non-crime the reason they do is because the college of policing has this whole section on non-crime hate incidents and the, the college of policing teaches police to investigate non-crime to record it um and uh, because they are ideologically captured and 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 now the law is catching up i think it's almost happened by stealth so i just don't think people realized it was going on and thank god for harry miller you know he was one who you know he was visited by a police officer who said he had to check his thinking because of a a, a poem he'd retweeted not written he'd retweeted a poem that was skeptical of gender identity ideology and the police officer turned up at his house and we need to check your thinking um and this is a non-crime hate incident the victim has contacted us Harry Miller said, why are you talking about a victim if there's no crime? Uh, so it's all this kind of thing. But, but Harry Miller didn't let it go and he took it to the Court of Appeal and won. So it has now been ruled that the, the, the College of Policing's guidelines as it stands is unlawful. And uh, if the police continue to do this, they will be breaking the law, but they are continuing to do it. The College of Policing's reaction has been interesting. They've said, oh, well, we'll go away and we'll revise the language. They wanna do the same thing. They're not gonna give up without a fight. They will. They will. They do want to continue doing exactly what they were doing before because they think they need to. Their job is to monitor people's thoughts. Uh, we had it last week with Nicola Murray in Scotland. Um, is it Nicola Murray? I think that's her name. She's a charity. Uh, she runs a charity called Brodie's Trust, uh, which which um, focuses on women's uh, domestic violence services for women. Right. Um, and she was visited by the police, and the police said to her again. In fact, the police officer, I think, almost said, "We don't really want to be here, but we have to." And the police officer said, uh, yeah, we need to just ascertain what your thinking was behind your tweet or whatever it was she'd, she'd said. I think it was a tweet. So it's still going on. This is not going to end with Harry Miller. It, and the only way it's going to win is because some of the lower courts have been captured ideologically. A lot of the police and certainly the College of Policing has been captured ideologically. The high courts haven't been. The judicial system is actually still pretty robust. And so by captured ideologi ideologically, you mean that essentially that the people working within those departments are um, they're sort of they are firm proponents of the idea that speech should be controlled or managed they're, by the government. Captured by this uh, new religion, which we might call critical social justice, is often colloquially called the woke movement, um, although that is open to endless reinterpretation. Um, mm. And what it involves is a, an obsession with group identity over the rights of the individual and a huge mistrust of free speech and a belief that there are nebulous power structures in society that only those who are trained in critical theory are qualified to detect. And in addition to that, the view that lived experience and the idea of personal experience uh, means everything. And you can see the, these, these ideological traits explicitly emerging in the College of Policing guidelines because they say that a non-crime hate incident or a hate incident full stop can be recorded even if there's no evidence of hateful intent. In other words, it's about the perception of the victim and it's not even yeah. a victim, it's a complainant. So they've changed the language there. Uh, and, and so I can phone up the police today and I can say, I've just done this podcast with Vanity Von Glow. Vanity said something that, so Vanity disagreed with me and I take that as a homophobic slight. I think it was because I was gay and they would be obliged because of the college policing guidelines to record that as non-crime. And it doesn't matter if you can prove, it doesn't matter that you're gay because I don't need to prove that it was hateful intent. I just have to say that I perceive it was hateful intent. Well, that is so baked in to this ideology. I mean, this is why I've written this new book about this 
this ideology because it's difficult to explain. I call the book the New Puritans because it's about uh, it's a kind of it's a kind of secular religion that has these various beliefs that are all overlapping and intertwined. It's why you get them saying things like uh, gender critical feminists are white supremacists. It's like yeah. well, it's because these things are overlapping to them. If you if someone's a uh, a feminist they're also white supremacists they're also homophobic you may as well just say sinner That's it's very convenient because it puts everyone it puts everyone bad in the same box of bad yep. you know that that bad is basically uh you know it's like a little train and its end destination is yeah white supremacy it's you collect what, everyone else along the way and then at the end you are a white supremacist it's what kids do they, they they say who's the goodies and who are the baddies in this film yeah that's what they want to know it's what disney does when they make all the villains ugly and all the, you know, they're well, doing that. that great Solzhenitsyn, is it, I think it was Solzhenitsyn's line of uh, that the line between good and evil runs down the heart of every man, you know, exactly right. every, man, every man and woman. We are, we are both, we are all multitudinous in our ability to be oppressed and oppressor. I feel like that's some, that's the thing that people miss in their understanding the most. I've always been quite aware of it because I was a badly behaved child, as mm. I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> and so I, I grew up always quite aware, like, no, I can definitely be a, a cunt. And, and, you know, and I use that, I think I've, you know, once you get out after the age of being younger and, you know, getting in trouble for being a bully and then, uh, although being bullied myself, but um, you grow up and you start to temper yourself against that, knowing that you have to be aware of your own strength and you have to be aware of your own capacity to terrorize other people. And I do think some people have come out of high school, um, uh, haven't realized that they've grown into quite fully formed uh, fully fledged adults and actually now they themselves are people in the world and they haven't got out of that mentality they haven't realized their own strength and they don't realize that they don't actually require this constant nannying protection around words yeah yeah exactly and and, they, and I think one of the things they also overlook is a lot of these activists that I'm talking about uh, who are I believe ideologically captured uh, are incredible bullies they are they, they are incredibly vicious and they are a demonstration of precisely that thing which you described. They think they're doing good. I mean, if you if you buy into this meta narrative that you're on the right side of history, it means that whatever you do and however horrible you are to people, you can say it's okay because you're the good guy. And it's 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 not even calculating. I think it's I think they mean it. I think the inquisitors who strapped people on the rack in the medieval period thought they were good people, thought they were doing the right thing, thought they were doing God's work. I know it's an extreme example, but I, but I think the point is valid that you know when you see people with be kind in their bios and, you know, love wins and they are behaving like monsters and yeah. demonizing and attacking people. And they can't see the irony of that. Um, they, they can't see that they're wearing this sheen of goodness uh, and it works as a kind of protective shield against their own human failings. I mean, what do you do with that? I don't know. Well, that's the same thing in Scottish, in the old Presbyterian way, the idea of the elect and the damned. Yeah, you know? exactly. And the, the horrible thing is that if you're in the elect, you could, you know, some people say I'm, I am elect, therefore I'm going to heaven. Therefore, that's pre, predetermined, bef- you know, before birth. And so you must rise to that because you're elect. And other people take it as well. I'm elect. I'm going to heaven anyway, so I can be as much of a dick as I want. And yeah. <laughs> that's like ugh, so I horrible. Know exactly, exactly. But the Calvinists didn't take it like that. Like you say, like it, it's an, it, you know, because it's not a license. Right. You should just behave like a monster. You know. But but you make a very good point, and that's where you know. I mean, I call them the new Puritans. They're nothing like the 17th century Puritans because the 17th century Puritans had a complete sense of their own fallibility, their own unworthiness, that, you know, they were constantly self-flagellating. And that's not something 
that the new Puritans ever do. I call them the new Puritans because they believe in a sense of moral purity. They have a new purity culture. And if you step slightly beyond what they deem to be acceptable, you are effectively Satan. And so I think it's quite a useful shorthand, but they're nothing like the Puritans. They don't have to flagellate themselves. They're so busy flagellating everyone else. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, Andrew, I could talk about all this stuff with you um, long into the night, um, (laughs) but I'm conscious that you are a busy lady. Um, and we'll need to get away for your uh, programming this evening. Um, I am so grateful to have you on, and people can actually pick up the book, Free Speech and Why It Matters, by Andrew Doyle. I dare say that they can find that at uh, littlebrown.co.uk is where it says. Can they get it on Amazon? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Any bookshop. Yeah, right, good. Okay. I didn't know if it was one of those books that they hide from people, you know? (laughs) I love that. Put it out in the shop front. Some shops are doing that now. I keep seeing feminists in particular say, going into Waterstones and asking for their book and they've been hidden because the oh, staff don't approve of the message. It's really I can, Yeah, I can imagine Julie, Julie Bindle going in with a battle axe into Waterstones oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to get her book shown. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much. And uh, for everyone listening, I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with the lovely Andrew Doyle. So here we are today now in Queen's Corner. Avid listeners of the Vanity Project will know that in every episode we have a sit down at the end with one of my drag queen friends or one of my colleagues from the world of nightclubs and debauchery. Today it's actually one of my old flatmates and and we've been friends for like eight years or something like that. I can hardly believe it's been this long. It's none other than Coco Femme Fontaine. Hey Coco. Hiya. (laughs) How are you doing Coco? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. <laughs> I'm glad you've come on to be my guest for Queen's Corner because I knew that Andrew Doyle being a presenter on GB News is a controversial figure to some people. Um, and so it's sometimes quite nice when you're having conversations around the issues like free speech to talk about the things that you don't always agree 100% um, with everybody on. So I know that you and I don't see eye to eye on every single issue, but I know that we can have productive conversations about things. So I thought it might be great to to reflect on the Andrew Doyle chat. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I was actually thinking about that when you invited me onto the onto Queen's Corner. Um, we've been friends for quite some time, and we've had many a gin fueled debate uh, on on lots of things. And I think that largely we're on the same wavelength. I think that we take different directions, but we often come to the same conclusions, um, but maybe from from different approaches. Um, and I think that. I've definitely, some, something that Andrew Broad said in the podcast about learning not being um, particularly comfortable and that sometimes when you need to change the way that you think or that you need to you, you need to look at things in a different perspective, that can sometimes be painful. And I definitely think I've had a lot of painful um, learning moments um, over the last couple of years um, and particularly the way that maybe I approach the subject of freedom of speech um, and it definitely maybe in the last two years um, it's become really important to me to make sure that we don't allow free speech to become a right-wing issue um, and yeah. you know that and actually sometimes we have to we have to present ourselves with opinions that we don't agree with um, and have conversations with people that we don't agree with all the time um i said to my boyfriend before coming on the podcast um because sometimes we also think very differently about these things i would much rather people be able to talk about the things that upset them or offend them or cause offense so that 
I'm aware of that. That I, you know, as somebody that can often be, you know, targeted as a minority by by hate speech and and people that you know would maybe want to to oppress my existence. I'd much rather that be happening in public where I can listen to that and I can maybe arm myself with defense than it happening like in seedy basements, you know, behind closed doors. Um, much like the drag community, to be honest. But <laughs> well, everybody knows that CD basements are for sex <laughs> and, not, and not for conversation. I'm That's not... true because I think I think about like when I was younger. I mean, I live a life now where every person I know is like I don't really know any homophobes because how could I? Like I've I've my life's moved in the direction where everyone I know is gay or queer or or whatever else. But that's not everyone's experience. There will be you know, gay people who work in a, on a shop floor and maybe maybe there's still like that one colleague who's way out of step or out of date. But um, I remember years and years ago when I was living in Glasgow and I was 17, I just started at uni, you would still encounter some people who were a bit backward in certain areas and you could have uh, uncomfortable conversations. There used to be a woman I worked with when I was like 15 in the hotel I worked in. <laughs> it was just like a really kind of homophobic person or she liked me enough but somehow like she was just blatantly homophobic and didn't seem didn't seem to bother her she said she disowned her brother for being gay and I was like but you can how is it you can still talk to me and she was <laughs> like well it was just it didn't all fit together because these things aren't necessarily rational but for you I mean you know as you say there's there's various different ways that you might be um falling into categories where people are phobic towards you but obviously you are queer you're also mixed race and a cat lady what <laughs> mixed race how <laughs> dare you no yeah <laughs> yeah and i mean you know like it i think it was about two years ago that i started to change you know i will admit that i have been you know that i've been subject of a uh, well, I've been involved in piling on to people on Twitter um, or onto social media, uh, as is popular with the kids. So though I'm not of an age to be classed as a kid um, anymore. Um, I'm nearing my 40s. <laughs> I'm, quite, I'm quite the old maiden. Um, but I think two years ago, like it was like a New Year's Eve or something. And like there was like some joke on Twitter about, you know, how like the Americans and the UKs love to come for each other's food. And like somebody had like posted something about an English breakfast and I thought, thought I had like replied wittingly um, with, you know, like with this monstrous American breakfast that's covered in butter and, you know, a whole pig worth of bacon um, and talked about, you know, and talked about how it's rich that the Americans, you know, eat this with no universal health care. Um, and I hadn't realized that the original tweet was from a black woman. And then this one particular uh, quote unquote woke person on Twitter um, piled onto me for this tweet and accused me of racism and classism. And, and effectively all of her like followers also like started to pile on me, um, you know, accusing me of racist, bringing into question my, my blackness and, and my identity. And I thought like for the last 10 years, most of my life has been dedicated to advocating for racial equity and equality. And, you know, I, it, it's part of my, it's a part of my, my day job and my work and is intrinsic to my identity. And here I have some random black woman in, in America who has orchestrated a pylon over what was supposed to be a jokey breath, breakfast tweet. You know what I mean? Like it was just breakfast. It's not that serious, but somehow, <laughs> Out of all of that, I had become like the number one enemy on Twitter for that day. And I, 
and I had to like I had to I deleted all of my tweets and like closed Twitter like um for a good couple of months because every day that I was like logging onto Twitter someone had discovered this thread and you know, mm. without you know, without going back on my thread and looking at the kind of tweets that I had made in the past, and you know what I stood for, we're seeing this 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 one tweet where other people are kind of joined this train of hate, um, and it, it it just it just snowballed, and I just thought that was really a wake up call for me, uh, in that like actually we need to we need to take into consideration um, our actions a little bit more carefully um, when when we might see you know this this gang mentality on social media and actually is the person subject to this pylon um, you know I don't want to say worthy because like no one should be worthy of any kind of, of any kind of hate but um, you know was it considered like you know was there was there cause for this pylon and it seems to me that there I think I might have said this in the chat with Andrew that like Things like Twitter sort of it's kind of baked into the into like the DNA of how that website works and how we communicate there. You're given a very limited number of characters. So you've kind of got to get your slam dunk in in quite a punchy way. And it really rewards witty, um, sort of low resolution responses. So, you know, a, a tweet thread can't necessarily take into consideration the fullness of a human being. And like, you know, we're all we're all whole human beings. We're maybe not perfect human beings, but we are whole and we have whole lives and whole stories. And that all gets reduced in a way that is like ungenerous. And, and it's a shame to have if we were all perfect. You know what I mean? What a boring, uneventful, non-nonsical world that would be. <laughs> it's funny because I think that one of the things people seem to be a bit more aware of today is that because we're all talking about the police crime and sentencing bill. Um, you know, and there's the kill the bill protests taking place, um, not as widespread as we might have hoped, I suppose. But it's a bit like people are going now, oh, right. So now I see that if in the culture we don't necessarily have a more generous view around free speech, it can then lead to the government's judging the mood and thinking that they can bring in legislation like this. Because, you know, Nadine Dorries, the culture secretary, was just saying the other day that, she thinks that they might bring in a media law to regulate what comedians can say on Netflix. Now, obviously, some people are like pissed off at the likes of Jimmy Carr, who is a pretty is a typically offensive comedian. His whole genre is quite offensive. Um, but I'm like, I'm just not sure that we want the you know the Tories or any government making laws about what jokes comedians can make. And that's a thing that like I feel they can only propose or suggest when we ourselves have all been kind of relaxed about the issue of, of tolerance around free expression. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that whole Jimmy Carr thing is absolutely is that, I mean it's an awful it's an awful joke and it's also not that very it's not that funny actually. You know, I watched a clip of it and I was um, I was like, mm, you know, um but it's kind know, of his genre. Like it, I I'd be surprised if anybody was watching him and didn't expect that sort of thing. So I find it a bit disingenuous when everyone clutches their pearls. Like I, I've never rated him. Like he's not to my taste. But you got to know what you're watching, you know. But also, yeah, exactly. You know exactly what you're getting when with with Jimmy Carr, and you can make an informed choice. You can either watch that Netflix special, or you don't watch the Netflix special. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like, and I think that like some of the times when I have these conversations, I've like everybody is has a you know I think has a right to to say whatever they want. Okay, but also on the flip side of that, and I and I think often. <laughs> Um, and these are some of the things I think about actually with um, um, with Andrew Doyle is that 
sometimes there can be this like this conversation where that like they talking about free speech does seem sometimes one one sided and sometimes I think that you know it, they can ridicule um, those that are, you, you know that uh, that lean slightly to the left or more further to the left, like myself. I think yeah, you have a right to say whatever you want, cause offence. I think I, I think fundamentally, and maybe I get cancelled for this, woohoo! But like I, I do think that you people have a right to hate and to be offensive and to offend and to say those things, and also people have a right to react and to hold you accountable, and there to be consequences. And you know, it, it's a two way street. You can say hateful things and there could be consequences to those to those hates. But I think that like we should everyone should have the freedom to say things. You should have the freedom to be able to cause offence and people should have the freedom to be able to hold you accountable for that offence. And also to, you know, to to express their feelings to what to what you've said. It's a it's a two way conversation. Do you know what I mean, you can't just say this is OK for everyone to say this, but no one can can say this because fundamentally like. Yeah, that 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 becomes scary territory as, as we've seen um, more recently. Do you know what always cracks me up is when like <laughs> I can't I can't think of an exact example of this, but you know if like the, a comedian makes a joke about I don't know, um, I, it could be it could be something like unmarried women in their fifties, right? <laughs> something like that, and. Um, and then and this joke resurfaces years later and then somebody goes and and takes the tweet to like the the um the institute of unmarried women in their 50s and it's like look at what this horrible comedian said how offensive how offensive and i always think well who's pissed who's upset that unmarried women in their 50s not the comedian because you're the one that's gone and taken it to them do you know what i mean this there is this sort of thing of like things the streisand effect of like when things blow up and suddenly every now everybody's talking about jimmy carr's comment and i'm like well the 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 dissemination of of his joke is greater now because of the response to it than the people watching his special do you so know what i mean taking these complaints these upsets is there some kind of like comedy ombudsman that you can go and complain to and that that's gonna be <laughs> <laughs> do you know what i mean like um i, I also like that i I don't know if you saw like when when the last season of Drag Race come out and Charity Case um, got in quite a lot of heat for some old from old tweets and I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning this on the public forum um, and then yeah. you know but also when I was watching that unfold I was thinking somebody or multiple people have had to go and take her name in Twitter and then search that with all manner of awful offensive language to find those tweets from you know five or six years ago, so I don't actually remember how long ago it was. Bring it up and then chastise them for it in the future. And I think that does trouble me um, because it's offence archaeology. It, well, yeah, quiet. But also, it, because as somebody that that fights for racial equity and 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 tolerance around minority, we have to we have to be tolerant to people's pasts because. If we are asking people to fundamentally change the way that they view things or speak about things or the language that they use, then you you, you have to be able to make mistakes. You have to then be able to, to have penance for those mistakes, to learn to change, to grow, and then not to, you know, not to repeat them and 
But if you're constantly being battered down for things you've done in the past over and over again, what motivation do people have to change or to not to not cause? And that is fundamentally, if we're fighting for equity, that's not what we're trying to do to to punch people down every time that they, you know, for every mistake they make. teach and educate people about why someone might find that offensive or why or why you're angry about that and give them an opportunity to grow but if you constantly constantly you know putting people in prison for like metaphorical prison for it then like why do people want to grow why do people want to learn why do people want to move forward and this is what peter tatchell says who was who's way back at the start of this run of episodes you know, he says that a successful movement makes allies of its enemies. So in the beginning, you know, um, for him, the enemies would be the people who didn't believe that gays, the, the gays should have equal rights. But he doesn't want to, like, put them all in the bin. He wants to convince them. You know, he wants to bring them on side. And, and, and that's really what, like, a successful movement is about. It's about bringing people back together, you know, um, because so many of the divisions between us, I mean, they're... Obviously, there are divisions between a lot of us that are illusory, um, but, you know, we all want to, well, I say we all, but the ultimate goal of a movement is to to bring people back together, you know, that's what it's got to be about, I think. Um, and so, like, I have a lot of admiration for so many of my friends who work in the areas where they're doing that, but sometimes the runaway train of social media is like this blunt instrument where like you've said about your, yourself and the and the american breakfast controversy <laughs> um it can all get a bit out of hand yeah. um i'm so yeah. i'm so glad that you've come on and um helped flesh out the ideas here a bit um we're hoping that we're going to do a season two in, in the spring of the vanity project so i'm sure these questions might come up again and maybe you'll come back on and we can we can get into it a little bit more I'd always, uh, I'd always happy to come back and have a chat with you, Vanity Bungalow. Many thanks. Coco Femme Fontaine, thank you so much. And everyone listening, don't forget to share this episode so that other people can um, enjoy the Vanity Project. Thank you. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.